You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. And today, poker. I'm Karen Feinerman. I actually am not a poker player. But 100 million people do play poker, but fewer than 10% of them are women. So we need to get more women making bets, taking risks, and practicing their best poker face. Erin Leiden can help us do that. She's the president of Poker Power, a women-led community that uses the game of poker to build confidence, challenge the status quo, learn strategy, and assess risk. Erin is joining us today to talk about her mission to teach one million women how to play poker and take calculated risks by gamifying key leadership lessons with poker gameplay. Before we get into the interview, I want to make a quick announcement. Our podcast is now on YouTube. Subscribe to the At Her Money channel to get notified when new episodes come out. And make sure to comment and like if you enjoy the episode. Erin, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So let me go back to the beginning of your career, well before poker ever entered it. But it sounds like it was important. Started at J.P. Morgan. Yeah, so I joined J.P. Morgan right after my second year of business school at Kellogg. I was in the private bank. I started in New York and then transitioned to live and work in Chicago. Absolutely loved it. Had an extraordinary team that I was part of. At that time, my Kellogg class was, I think, 26% women. And our class at J.V. Morgan was about that, too. So it was extremely male-dominated in the bank. I end up in Chicago with an incredible mentor. His name was Fabrice. And spent the first year really being an apprentice to learn this business. And this is pre-Jamie Dimon, so it's really hard to remember back what this was like. But J.P. Morgan was an incredibly special place because it hired you for the long term. You were mm-hmm. going to be there for your entire career. And there was a very unique way of being a J.P. Morgan banker that we were all taught how to do. At the end of year one on Wall Street, you receive a bonus. And that bonus is typically a multiple of your salary. So it's a big number and it really matters. And I had come from nonprofit before Kellogg. So my scope of a big number was really anything over 100,000 was a big number to me. So when I received my bonus in January, I stood up, I shook Fabrice's hand, and I said, thank you so much. I am so grateful. And I walked out of the room. Now, This is at a time when there was pay secrecy on the street. There is still pay secrecy on the street, but it was really well enforced. And so, as often happens, though, is, you know, late at night, you you head out with your your colleagues. The more transparency. (laughs) The more transparent you get. And I learned that I had been significantly underpaid that day. 
And in a very easy comparison to people who had the same background, same education, same book of business. And the way that I received that information is that it felt like a punch in the gut. And I felt badly about myself. I felt like I had messed up. And I didn't feel anger. I didn't feel frustration. I just felt like there's this whole game being played and I didn't understand it because I didn't know I was supposed to ask for more. Uh-huh. So it wasn't what that you felt, oh, I didn't perform well. No, not at all. Not, that didn't change. No. It was the, wow, I'm missing a whole other level of game here that yeah. I didn't even know. It's happening. Yeah. Uh-huh. And Did you go back to them after? <laughs> no. Oh. I did continue working for another five years and, okay. I had, and figured out how to get paid, which is important. I'm actually very grateful. Like, in hindsight, I can be very grateful for the experience because it happened when I was 29 years old. Right. Um, so it really at the beginning of my, my finance career, it was an enormous lesson. It was a lesson I felt so strongly about that 10 years later, I'm doing a TED Talk about it because I felt I don't want this to happen to other women just because they don't know. Like, we shouldn't actually be far behind because we didn't know the questions to ask. And I took it on as one of my obligations is to share this knowledge. And I always say, and I think it's important to me, is that I love J.P. Morgan. Like, I never had bad feelings about the firm. Mm -hmm. I had bad feelings that I didn't know how to figure out how to be more successful there. And so much in banking, you have to speak the language, you have to understand the nuances of it. And I just felt I was behind. I hadn't asked the right question. So I really internalized it much more so than feeling like, why? Did, I never asked the question, why didn't someone tell me? It was, why didn't I ask? And so it was all about self-awareness and wanting to get better at it myself. What happened next, though, is I got pregnant. And so I was 35, so I was an older mom, first child, mm -hmm. and I struggled enormously with a very heavy travel schedule. I traveled three days a week. Mm -hmm. I had a travel nanny. I had a stay-at-home nanny. And I cried all day, 24-7, except for when I was in front of the client. Um, and was really just falling apart and really sad about that, that there wasn't a safety net. There wasn't a pathway in place to help me at work figure this out. And so I paused my career. And so that calculus, the risk of leaving the workforce, I mean, you had to know that would set you back. Oh, for sure. I don't think I realized how much it could set me back because in my head, it was going to be a short pause. I needed a reset time. I needed to really figure out how to be a working mother. I didn't have a lot of good examples for that. And I also thought that it will get better. What happened is I had a second child. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't uh, get better. No, it doesn't get better It with doesn't more. get better when you have a second child. And it was, it was something I very much wanted to do is, uh -huh. is have two children. And at that point, I just said, I think I'm, I'm down for the count right now. Moved out of the city, actually moved to South Dakota of all crazy places, which is a whole nother podcast of taking a city girl to South Dakota. But, you know, do the things that I think a lot of women who are in high potential careers and, and very ambitious is you throw yourself into everything around you. So the charity boards, the things at the child's school. You become super at all the things you used to be superwoman at. You, you just do that within your community. The problem for me is that I didn't get enough from that. So much of my ego, of my self-worth, came from working at J.P. Morgan. And when that went away, I struggled for years. And then what made you decide, all right, I really want to go back to the workforce? I always wanted to go back. Mm -hmm. My children were a little bit older, and one of the, they're both daughters. And one of the things I realized is how critical it was going to be for them to see mom working and being successful and being happy. And that was really my driving reason for wanting to get back into the workforce is 
I didn't want to just be that stay-at-home mom, even though I so much admire the women that thrive in that space. It just wasn't me. And so I kept a very strong network from my time in banking as well as from Kellogg. And I was able to join as a board director for two companies. One was a small private one and one was a public one. It was in the pink sheets, so barely public, Mm -hmm. but a public one. And that really is what got me back into business, got me talking the talk again, got me putting the suit on again. This is 2012. Get the uniform on. And I was working on strategy for both of those companies, which is an area that I just felt really strong in. And I felt like I was impacting really positively. So I did that for three years for both of those companies. So you had big career changes from working at J.P. Morgan to becoming a strategic advisor at Evil Geniuses, which is an esports organization. And now you have your current role at Poker Power. So looking at your career trajectory, someone might say you were always trying to get a seat at the table, (laughs) right? In the boys club. Or maybe you were on a mission to make a male-dominated field more accessible to women. But what was driving you and probably changed at different points? Yes. I actually, if I had even looked back four or five years ago, I never could have imagined myself running a poker company. It wasn't in the realm of possibility because I didn't play poker. Did you know and how to even play I did, poker? I never had sat at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I had actively avoided the table because when I was at J.P. Morgan, there was always a poker game happening on the floor. There were always men on my team who would go and play poker. So I was surrounded by it, but I never felt I could take the seat. And I never felt welcomed, but I also never asked because I had no interest. I didn't see the game as anything other than a bunch of guys, a bunch of booze, some cigars probably, and gambling going on. Um, I didn't understand the game as a game of strategy, a game of risk-taking, and a game that can really help you learn skills that will accelerate your career. So... Peak Six is a parent company mm-hmm. of Evil Geniuses as well as Poker Power. Peak Six acquired Evil Geniuses in May of 2019. Evil Geniuses is a legendary esports team. And you can really think about it as an organization that runs different teams across different video games and with professional players. I was brought on right after the acquisition to be a strategy advisor for the company, really the eyes and ears for Peak Six. I've been involved in and out of Peak Six for many years. And I love that role. I, I love just, I, we were in a concrete bunker in Redmond, Washington in the beginning. Um, It was a really high-energy startup, changing every day. Okay. Um, Why were you in a cement bunker? (laughs) We're very frugal at Peak 6, and the rent in the cement cement bunker was affordable um, for the organization during that time. But it it truly, like, the ceiling was falling down. There were wires. I'm sure, you know, there was an OSHA hazard there one way or another. Bunker with cement ceiling falling down does sound, okay. A little scary. (laughs) But it wasn't really about the location. It was about the energy and the passion that was happening within that building all around continuing to build this incredible esports team. I loved it. I really thrived on that. The founder of Peak Six, I've known her for 25 years. I've known her from my J.P. Morgan days. And I was in her home during the holidays of 2019. And she said, I have this poker idea. And I said, well, that's a really stupid idea. And she laughed and I laughed. And I said, the reason I think it's a stupid idea is that at that time, Poker Power was not yet a company. It was an idea on the North Shore of Chicago. And the goal was, let's teach some high school girls how to play. And in fact, we'll bring their moms along, too, because we had a thesis that if we could get the skills and strategies of hooker into a young woman's hand, they are going to be far better prepared in college, but even more so when they step out onto that first step of the ladder for the workplace. And the reason I responded negatively is because of my background, having always seen the game and never understood the value of it. I didn't yet have the, the thesis of poker actually 
is a skill and strategy that everyone should have, not just men. Women should have this too. Um, but I agreed. I agreed to roll on in the middle of February 2020. So think back okay, in time. Right. What was happening uh, then? Yeah. Uh-huh. So at that time, we were teaching small cohorts of young girls in their living rooms and their kitchens in person. Okay. Uh-huh. The world locks down in March. And of course, you know, initially we all thought it was just a couple of weeks. That's okay. When we realized it wouldn't be a couple of weeks, we knew we were either going to have to just stop the initiative because we couldn't be in person or we could pivot and we could try to adapt to this virtual world. And I always say that the pandemic was Poker Power's perfect storm because without it, I don't think we would have had the vision to scale internationally, to move into working with corporates. Every teenager in America couldn't fathom turning on their camera one more time for an education session, but every company around the world was desperately trying to get employees and clients to interact across a Zoom screen. We slid right in there with a curriculum that taught 12 hours of poker lessons, each of the lessons tied to a leadership theme that we feel are really critical for women to learn and practice. And we sold ourselves as leadership development, professional development, at a time when there was a great appetite for engaging programming that was virtual. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's get into the themes. What is it that you are trying to teach, and how does poker help teach that? Yeah, so we are trying to reframe first the game, the value of the game, and the perspective that women have around the game, because there's a lot of negativity when you say the word. In fact, oftentimes I'll say the word to a female friend, and she physically just turns away. She just really isn't interested in poker. What does she Um, imagine the average woman poker player is? Yeah, it's more the space. The space (laughs) is in the basement. It's smelly. Okay. It's, it's bro. It's <laughs> all bro. Cigar, right. It's uh-huh. cigars. And it doesn't feel welcoming and inclusive. And then if you translate that to the other image of poker is James Bond. So it's an opulent casino. It's extremely high end. You have to be very wealthy to play in that field. And they, the women who are represented are the cocktail waitresses, you know, scantily dressed, coming around with the drinks for the men who are playing. So neither one of those faces feels like a place that I would want to be and probably most women would want to be. So we have to reframe that. And the way that we do that, we talk about the game as a strategy game and a game that as you continue to play it repetitively, it's just like doing reps in the weight room, is that you're building these muscles around strategy, Mm risk-taking, negotiation. Confidence comes as one of the results of all that. Resilience, discipline, learning how to calculate, learning how to bluff. All of those are really critical skills to accelerate your career and to take you to success. And I take a very wide definition of success because not every woman wants to be in the C-suite at all. Not every woman wants to be a founder of a company. But we all have our own definition and are looking for ways to get there faster and do it better. And I think that playing this game and learning to think and strategize and take risks like a poker player is that secret sauce. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Aaron Lydon, president of Poker Power. So I want to drill down on the poker part yeah. and about the skills that you think it gives women. Mm-hmm. How can they start? Yeah. So women really come to us through two different ways. You can come as part of our corporate program. So we work with 250 companies around the globe. So we come in as leadership development, a professional development program, often under HR, DEI, or the women's networking groups. When we work with corporates, they usually come in as a, a cohort of 50, 75, 100 women. Um, mm-hmm. We really like to have 300 to 1,000 women, so multiple cohorts that we're working with. And we offer them a series of lessons, anywhere from one lesson all the way through 12. Um, so we offer 12 one-hour virtual lessons. Since the pandemic ending, of course, you can now play with us in person. Right. So about 60% of our corporate partners have us on site. And so we bring our teachers. It's a 90-minute, incredibly fast-paced, fun experience to play poker with us and also get the leadership lessons tied to the gameplay. Okay. So the fundamentals in terms of strategy Mm -hmm. are what? How do you lay them out? Yeah. So poker is a puzzle is how we like to think about it. And it's a matching game at its most basic. And it's very important to, to break it into bite-sized steps because there is so much complexity in the game. And I always say it takes a lifetime to master. I will never master the game. You will never master the game. And so what we have done in our 12-part curriculum is break it down into very digestible parts. So on day one, our theme is courage. We know it takes a lot of courage to sit at a poker table. And I just am going to teach you the fundamentals of the basic jargon. It right. is truly a foreign language. Yep, you need um, jargon. You need jargon and the rules. And so you need to learn what cards beat what other cards. That's basically lesson one. You get a little bit of playtime in our app. Lesson two gets a little more exciting in that the theme of that lesson is being bold, which is really about being aggressive. In and terms of betting? In terms of betting, your game play moves at the table. You can play passively or you can play aggressively. And you'll use that strategically depending on how big is your chip stack, what position are you holding at the table, which alternates, it moves around the table with each new hand. And we are teaching women how to get outside of the comfort zone, which is to play more passively. And the way you play aggressively is you're going to put a big stack of your chips into play. And what happens every single time we do this is a woman will say, it comes to the moment in the game where she should shove her chips all into the middle of the table, put all her value into the middle of the table, And she'll say, can I just keep back six or seven of them? And we say, no, you cannot keep back six or seven of them because this is the behavior we're trying to change Uh is that I need a little bit for my rainy day fund. I need a little bit to put under the pillow. 
I don't want you to put any of it under the pillow because one, this isn't real money. Uh-huh. Let's keep that There's in mind. That. Uh-huh. But two, I want you to get really comfortable being uncomfortable in this game. And our teachers are very good at bringing that behavior out in the players so that after you've played, let's say, three, four times with us, you're actually going to be really excited when, when, the, when everything lines up and you're ready to shove. You're going to shove those chips in really proudly. And then what happens is the winner feels like a rock star. And there are so few times in our lives that we truly get to feel like a rock star. And you do. And then the last thing that happens is those other eight women at the table are celebrating. And they are Uh clapping and they're catching it for the Instagram (laughs) reel. And it's this collaborative, collective moment of competition, but absolute support and belief in each other. So that's interesting. That's the woman network sort of effect. But it's interesting. I've really come to the conclusion that not taking risks is very risky in business, in your career. It seems like it isn't, and yet it's one of the riskiest things you can do. It is. And I think, too, that there's data around and research around, even if you take a risk in the workplace, like you present a project, the project gets funded, and it fails, or it doesn't have the anticipated result. The person who leads that still gets the credit for having suggested it and seen it executed Uh on it. Whereas the person who didn't get involved or in fact said, no, I'm not comfortable doing that, they are penalized more than the person who actually takes the risk and then fails. And that's actually poker because professional players, and we're not trying to make professionals, but I know a lot of professional players now, they're going to lose more hands than they win. And so the only way you could be a professional player is that when you do bet, you bet really big. And that... When we think about women's experiences from the time they're on the playground all through their career, there aren't a lot of opportunities that women get to shove all in. And so it isn't a learned behavior. It's certainly not a practice behavior. And men do it. Men are doing it when they're six years old on the playground and they're figuring out who's getting hit by the ball, who's kicking the ball, who's winning, who's the fastest, who's the strongest. The girls are on the swings. And so from a very young age, we are not competing and having to be, you know, put ourselves at risk. And unfortunately, you know, girls drop out of competitive sports by the time they're in middle school, early into high school. They drop out of STEM when they're in college. There are all these points where we are limiting ourselves, unfortunately. Some of it's cultural, some of it's social, some of it is we just don't know how to do it. We, We weren't included in it. And so by the time you get to be 22, 23, the divide is big between the genders, and it's just going to continue to widen and widen. So there's the part of understanding the game, understanding the risks, and that sort of emboldens these women. But Mm -hmm. I'm sort of also really curious about the second part, learning to bluff. Mm. Yeah. Tell us that lesson. So oftentimes someone thinks that the word bluff means lying, and it doesn't. And it certainly doesn't in a poker game. So bluffing is withholding information. And it is an incredibly important negotiation skill is to know how to withhold information. And to do it with a poker face is even better. And so we will often, as the cards get dealt, oftentimes everyone at the table doesn't really get very good cards. That's very typical in poker. And so the person who's going to take down that pot, if no one has good cards, is the person who plays aggressively and is able to bluff that they have a strong hand. You don't just come pre-equipped knowing how to do that and doing it convincingly. So often in our games, actually, when we start playing, the cards are all face up. We find that's a really quick way for people to get comfortable with the rules of the game. But eventually, you know, after about 15, 20 minutes, the cards are face down. And let's just say, Karen, that you've gotten bad cards for half an hour. And you're kind of of frustrated by that. It's not much fun if you have Mm -hmm. to keep folding and folding. Our instructor is probably going to lean over to you and say, Play this hand. Play this hand like you play it have all out. pocket aces, which is the very best starting hand in Texas Hold'em. That's how I want you to play this hand. 
And one, you're going to feel a little uncomfortable doing that because you got really comfortable folding. You knew how to do that. Yeah. And now you have to tell a story, a narrative, that you have the very best hand at the table. And it holds as all the cards come out, the five cards come out on the community board. You're going to hold that story. There's a lot of learning that happens in that process because the story might break down when the fourth card comes out. And the fourth card really doesn't help you at all. At this point, you know your cards are not going to turn into the best hand at the table. You still have to carry that story out and practice the bluffing piece. You may be successful. You may lose. And as I said, you lose a lot more than you win in poker. That's okay, too, because then what we're going to do is we're going to talk through your decision-making process and talk Uh through the other people, what they were thinking as the cards were coming out, because poker is an ever-evolving game. New information comes out on the table, and you're going to make a different decision than the one you started with. Okay, so if you bluff and you've been... Found out, let's yes. say. Yeah. That makes it more difficult then. No? Or easier? More, I don't know. More difficult to, to bluff, bluff again. in the future. Yeah. Yes. So one of the things you're looking for when you're playing poker with your opponents is patterns of behavior. Mm-hmm. So first you have to establish the baseline. So what I do when I'm at a poker table is I actually will not play my cards till I've been there about 20 or 30 minutes. And you just my, fold, fold, I'm fold, just fold, 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 fold. With the sole purpose is I want to understand the gameplay and the patterns of play and the behaviors mm-hmm. of everyone else at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so really keying into those poker tells. And if I can try to figure out, okay, you had the biggest chip stack. Did you just win one hand because you got lucky? Right. Or are you an exceptionally good player and you're actually going to scoop up all the chips at this table pretty quick? Mm-hmm. I want to know that before I put my chips into play. The bluffing piece is you have to use it very sparingly. And you have to use it very strategically. And the way you can do it strategically is that at a poker table, each seat is either a seat of strength or a seat of weakness. So the early seats, so those are the blind positions, those are a position called under the gun. Those are weak positions at a poker table. Because you have less information you than have the somebody least, later. Because right, you mm. have to act first. So you're not seeing the play of everyone else. The dealer position, which is it's called dealer, it's not the person dealing the cards. The dealer position is the strongest position because you act last. So you've seen everyone go before you. The dealer position and the person just to their right, those are the strongest positions to bluff from because you have so much information. And you can create a story that makes sense. And poker is all about telling a story, having it be credible, and and then being able to bet enough chips that what you're telling me makes sense to me as your opponent. Your story can fall apart pretty quickly when you bet erratically, which is what all beginners do. I always say that the most difficult people to play in poker is the day one player because they are going to be, they're, they're playing a 2-7 <laughs> right. like it's the you know pocket aces. And I'm like, oh, right. why'd you play that? And it's because they don't know. I was just telling someone that we call a new player a novice, it's called a fish. And so you can imagine a really good player is called a shark. And when you are playing in a, a tour setting such as Vegas, you're always looking to figure out who's the fish at the table because they probably have $1,000 in their pocket and it's entertainment. They're planning to lose it one way or another. So uh-huh. you've got a good chance of getting it. You really want to key on, on the fish. Now, women are always thought to be the fish at the table. Right. Which is a and potential advantage. Huge advantage. Right. So in fact, when you're not a fish and you're thought to be a fish, that's like, you know, that's the gameplay scenario you want. Interesting. So I would think of myself as a guppy at this point, <laughs> but it's fascinating to just see how it evolves. All right. So tell me about the part of entering into this man's game as a way to further your career. Yeah. So we are not interested in keeping the community of poker power separate from men. We feel very strongly that we have created an environment that feels very inclusive and very safe to learn in. 
And it is women plus, and it's intentionally that way. But the goal is you get to a level of confidence with us, and you're able to take all those skills and strategies, whether they're actual poker strategies or strategies from a poker game that you apply to your career, and go back to the real world. And the real world, for many of us, is full of men. Um, And many many of the decision makers in our company are all men. Our C-suites are heavily men. And so it, it doesn't really serve a purpose if you can thrive in this very controlled, artificial space of our poker table and not then translate the skills to the real world. So the way that we do that is through that repetitive play. I need you to come to lessons. I need you to practice the game. And I need you to also be understanding the moves that you make in poker are going to mirror a negotiation in the boardroom, as an example. So when I say that, more specifically what I mean is that in poker, there are three levels of thinking, and, and we teach these. So the first level is a very binary decision. you got your whole cards, and you're going to raise, which means you put chips into play, or you're going to fold. You're out of the game. That is the most basic way to negotiate any kind of deal. Is all you're thinking about is, what, what do I have? You're not thinking about anyone else. Level two is you're asking yourself, what do I have? And what do I think you have? So you're shifting the perspective from your two whole cards to what is the possibility that you could have something that's going to beat me. So you're widening that perspective. It's a much better way to negotiate is to focus on the other right, people. Right. The, the calculus. Uh-huh. Yes. The third level of thinking and the, really the most complex is you ask yourself, what do I have? What do I think you have? And what do I think you think that I have? Right. So it comes back. That has to be practiced. You just don't show up on day one knowing how to think like that at a poker table. But the people who focus, the players who focus more on the others are going to be a more successful player. And I feel it's the same way with negotiation, is you don't just want to think about how does this benefit me, but how can this benefit everybody? The difference, though, is that in a negotiation, you're looking for everyone to come out in some fashion, a winner. At a poker table, it's a zero-sum game. One person wins, everybody else loses. And I think that is also really critical, that that level of competition and that level of there is something at risk, and I am not going to halfway win this pot. I'm going to 100% lose this pot or 100% win this pot. As women, we need to get more comfortable with that amount of risk-taking so we can translate it to our lives. And so I would imagine you've played in tons of games where it's men, and I imagine the cigar. Do you smoke a cigar? I do not. Do you chew on one or I something? I do not. It's <laughs> okay. not my thing. All right. So you're there, and do you feel like you are at an advantage? It really does depend on the table. So I play quite a bit in Vegas. I enjoy doing that. When I play against men, it is very different. Like an all-male table, which is the very first real poker table I played at, there were eight men and there were me, and I was scared to death. I actually had two of our professionals sitting behind me, writing down my hands. And you're allowed to do that. I'd show them my whole cards, and they were keeping track of the gameplay for me. And they're allowed to advise you during the game? They cannot talk to me during the game, but they could write it all down so we could debrief afterwards, Uh which is what we did. Interesting. Um, I'll tell you a quick story is that in that game that was at the Venetian, I, on my very first hand, the very first time I played live, the buy-in was $300, which felt like a lot of money to put into a poker game when I'm not very good. And on my very first hand on the river, I got what's called a full house. And a full house is a strong hand. It's a really good hand. And I should have bet aggressively on that last card, the river card that came out. I was too new of a player to recognize. I didn't match up the cards in my brain well enough to know that I had the full house. So I called the other player, which means I just matched right, the Right, it's bet. a very uh, weak, right, weak, very passive uh, move. Passive, okay. The other player is now terribly confused because I've played so erratically, uh-huh. and now I've called on the river. So he shoves his chips in. 
And so I just matched that bet. I'm like, okay, I guess see, I'm not really sure what I was supposed to do right now. So I shove my uh-huh. chips in. I take down the whole pot. Uh, so I go from having $300 in chips to having $1,500 in chips really, really quickly. And did you pretend like that was my strategy all exactly, along? Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I did. And of course, and then Schwann and Amanda, who are the two pros behind me, are trying total poker face here. Right, do right. not give this away that she has no idea what she's doing. <laughs> she just had the luckiest hand in the world. Um, but I ended up playing for 90 minutes, which felt like actually 90 hours. It was exhausting mentally. And I turned to them. I said, can I just get up and go? Because I actually didn't know the rules. Right. About, you know, in a cash game, you can always get up and leave. I could have left right after that first hand. I scoop all those chips. You put them in you know, a plastic rack. Yes, rack. in the rack. Okay. You're holding them. Got the picture taken. And then you go to what's called the cage and they cash you out. They literally count out the $100 bills to you. Uh, to this day, I have not had such a thrill. Like that, that was an absolute really? perfect first day of poker for me. I will tell you what happened next is three weeks later, I went to my local casino. I had never played there. There's only one poker table. It's a bit dingy. It's pretty smelly. Do the $300 buy-in. Sit down at the table. The first hand comes out. It's eight guys and me. And I now recognize this. I am on a flush draw. I need one more card to come to get that flush draw. It comes out on the board. And so I have a flush. And I didn't think, I didn't pause. I definitely hadn't been watching for 30 minutes before I put chips into play. Uh, And I uh shoved my entire stack into the middle of the pot. Like, oh, now you describe that rookie move, huh? Right. I think I'm a rock star still. The guy across from me also has a flush. And his flush is higher. I'm sorry. I've been saying flush. I keep meaning straight. His straight Straight is higher higher than my straight. So he has a card that is higher than mine. Mm -hmm. So he's won the whole pot. Uh So within a matter of three minutes, I have lost all my chips. I have really embarrassed myself. And I say the only good news is I was not wearing Poker Power swag because that would have been really mortifying. (laughs) And then what happened is I felt like I was at a sixth grade dance because I I didn't want to get up because they'd notice me. Uh I just wanted to sink down in my chair and pretend I wasn't there. Uh And what I missed at that table, which was an enormous tell to have missed, is that the dealer, the person who actually was dealing the cards, he knew these guys by name, and he was chatting with them in a very social, comfortable way. Uh So unlike at a Vegas table where, you know, so many tourists, they come once or twice a year, these were guys who were in this casino probably two, three times a week. They played a lot. These were not Uh fish. These were very, very good players. And I missed the I missed the entire tell that was happening at that table. I should right. have recognized that they were really good players. The lesson learned came from the second time I played. Uh-huh. The thrill of the first time gave me that adrenaline rush that I just keep seeking. And I'm, a, I'm uh-huh. an adrenaline junkie. Like, I used to race fast cars. Yeah, actually, my J.P. Morgan team, that's how we entertained ourselves on Fridays, is we would go to a racetrack in, it's actually called Gingerman. It's in Michigan. And we all had our own sports cars, and we would go race around the track with a bunch of other guys from Goldman and a bunch of <laughs> the other firms. It was kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah, it is kind of um, crazy, actually, when you <laughs> think about it. <laughs> and I, I used to take my car. I would burn out the brakes. And so I'd take my car back to the dealer, like, week after week to have the brakes replaced. And he kept saying, what are you yeah. doing to this car? Well, one, I'm not a very good driver, apparently, because I had to keep putting pressure on the brakes. But yeah, it was actually a thrilling way to bond with these other, mostly, I was the only girl at these races. So uh-huh. um, I get it. I mean, there's the adrenaline of doing this, the sport and then the bonding. And all right, that's kind of a, an interesting activity as well. So you're out there, you're driving cars, you're playing poker. Amazing. All right. So clearly there is a ton to learn here. But can you share with us a story of someone who didn't know anything about poker 
took the class and came back and had something to tell you that happened to them as a result of what they learned. Yes. We have many testimonials on our website of women going through the class and now having the confidence that, you know, they're, they're going to seek a raise, they're going to seek a promotion, they're changing jobs. So we love all of those stories. And one of the one that stands out for me is a woman in L.A. who went through our classes. And she was a commercial real estate person. And she had, as she described it to us, she had never bid on the big jobs. All the big jobs in L.A. were being bid on by groups of men in different firms that were mostly men. And she very much wanted to be in play there. She went through our class. And then she says that she then had the courage to actually put her first big bid in. Scared to death, you mm-hmm. know, that she was going to lose. She was really putting herself out there. Everything gets reviewed and the decision gets made and she wins the bid. And so she wow. comes back and tells mm-hmm. us this story that is so similar to that moment of shoving your chips all in and having everybody celebrate you. Because what we know is that success fuels the next one and the next one. It only, you only have to do it once and get it right. And then you want to do it again. We have another woman who went through our course as she was getting divorced, and she credits Poker Power with her being able to negotiate a better divorce settlement because she had really learned how to bluff, and she had learned how to think more strategically about what was in play and what she could ask for. She did not tell her soon-to-be ex that she was learning poker. That was uh-huh. her, her little secret right. sauce her, that she yes. was bringing into the table. Uh-huh. Um, pretend so, she's a fish. Yeah, pretend she's always the fish. Uh-huh. Excellent. All right, we're going to have to take a break, and we'll be right back with the lightning round. Okay, here we go. This is really just would you rather, and the only thing is you just got to say the first answer that comes to your mind. Okay, you ready? Yep, I'm ready. All right, Wall Street or Las Vegas? Wall Street. The win or the Bellagio? Oh, win, always. Okay, Texas Hold'em or Omaha Hold'em? Oh, I know how to play PLO because I have a good friend who taught me, but I would only play Texas Hold'em. Okay. I just learned that phrase yesterday. Omaha Hold'em. And Texas Hold'em, actually, I'd heard. But anyway, okay. Would you rather take a risk or gamble? That's a really, actually, brilliant question. And I am very comfortable taking risks. I do not gamble. I hear you. Exactly Mm -hmm. the same. Okay. Red or black? Oh, red. Would you rather start your own company or become CEO of a Fortune 500 company? Start my own. English or French? Mm, I speak both. I know you do. That's why we asked the <laughs> but question. But I'm much better at English. I, I speak French when I've had a little bit of wine. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Uh, running or weightlifting? Mm, I run. Okay. Uh, Casino Royale or Molly's Game? Molly's Game. All right. For those who might not know, two poker movies. Would you rather be underdressed or overdressed? I, I usually dress to the nines. Uh-huh. Okay. Would you rather laugh uncontrollably or be moved? Be moved. Drive or be driven? Be driven. Fiction or nonfiction? Ah, uh, it's evolved, but it's now nonfiction. Uh huh. Okay, what are you reading? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, reading a poker book. It's by Alex O'Brien. It's called The Truth Detective. And is it about poker, or it's in the poker world? It's this story in the poker happens? world. She is a professional player, and she's been able to translate the game to all the strategies and skills that we talk about at Poker Bar. We're good friends, and she's a scientist, and she's written a really good book about the brain and poker. Ah, okay. All right, last question. What is the best investment you've ever made, and what is the worst investment? And it's a broad definition of investment, anything you want. I'm going to say my best is my investment in myself. And it's taken me a while to get there, but I am putting Aaron Leiden first, and it feels really good. And it feels really good to see the results of those, sort of the self-awareness that comes from doing it. And then 
the self-actualization of what's, what is going to come in the future. My worst investments is getting into relationships that did not help me evolve forward. Okay. Excellent answers. All right. Well, Erin, thank you so much for being here. It is a fascinating subject. I feel like I have so much to learn. Oh, thank you. I will leave you with one thing, which is that we always say, shuffle up and deal. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Erin Leiden for sharing why more women need to learn the game of poker to get ahead in work and life. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward.